For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a birth announcement like no other. I mean, think about it. You've, you've received the announcement of a birth, perhaps, or maybe you've sent out one of your own. With all of our five children, when they were born, we sent out the birth announcement just like everybody else did or does. It usually contains uh, the gender. It'll have the name. And then it will say uh, the child weighed this much or is this long, the height. And it may list uh, other family members. But that's about it. But this birth announcement, this this is unusual. In the first place, it's pretty early. You know, we send birth announcements after the birth. But this was written 700 to 750 years before the birth of the boy Jesus, of our Messiah. And yet, this royal birth announcement is given way, way, way in advance. The other thing is, most birth announcements I read don't say things like, here's the birth of the future president of the United States or the next valedictorian or a future medical doctor. Why? Because there are no accomplishments to be listed for a child in a birth announcement. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with that little girl or that little boy as they grow. But here, we're told that this child will have four distinct names or titles, if you will. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The birth of Jesus, the announcement of his birth, sets him apart from any other ever born or to be born. So what we're doing in these Sundays of Christmas is we're focusing on this one amazing birth announcement. 700 years before the birth ever happened. And with accomplishments, with titles that should grab us, should encourage us, should help us. We've made it to the second of those titles. Mighty God. We want to talk for a few minutes this morning about what that compound, those two words, mighty and God, how they affect us, how they should encourage us, what they actually mean. Mighty. If you go back and look at a Hebrew dictionary, for this is Old Testament, it is Hebrew language. You're going to find mighty defined, much like you and I would probably pull a definition just right out of thin air right now. If I were to say to you, mighty or might, what comes to mind, you would probably be very close to the definition that's intended here in Scripture. Mighty means strong. It means powerful. It means conqueror. And indeed, the idea of Jesus being born and called mighty 
is something that we can also look at his life and begin to understand why he is mighty. Did he do things that were mighty? Well, let's think about it for a minute. He was and is, continues to be mighty in his teaching. If you go through those gospels, you begin to read the red letter words. Those are the actual words that Jesus spoke. You will find that much of what he did in the three years he ministered upon the face of the earth was he taught. And the Bible tells us time and time again that his teaching was unlike any other. It was strong. It was mighty. Time and again, the gospel writers will tell us that when the people heard the words of Jesus, they were dumbfounded. They were overwhelmed because he spoke as someone who was not just speaking with the authority of a scribe or a religious leader, but his words were powerful. His ideas were strong. So, 700, 750 years before his birth, he's called the mighty God. And then in his life, as he lived it out, especially during those three years when he ministered before he went to the cross, his teaching was astounding. And it still is today. But he's mighty, not just in his teaching, but he was mighty in probably the most obvious way. His miracles the miracles of Jesus. You read them. As a matter of fact, our adult Bible study classes during these weeks of Christmas and even spilling over into the first couple of months of 2020 are going to focus on the miracles that are found in the gospel of Matthew. And those miracles are amazing. Never repeated again to bring sight to the blind to restore hearing, to take a person who was afflicted with the most despicable disease of that day and still is today, leprosy. There is no, nothing to equal it, nothing to match it. Mighty in his miracles. John the baptizer, John, Jesus' cousin, you remember he was thrown into prison for a period of time. And there during that stay in prison, he grew despondent. And the Gospels tell us that John basically wondered if he had done the right thing in in baptizing Jesus, for one, in putting a, a stamp of approval upon his ministry. He was discouraged, as you could imagine. It seemed that everything he stood for and everything he talked about was being ignored. And the gospel tells us that John sent some of his disciples, some of his close friends to Jesus. And they just basically laid their cards out on the table. And they said, Jesus, John has a message. He has a question. Are you the one? Did John, has he done everything he's done in his life? Has he done it in the right direction? Has he put his stamp of approval upon the one and only begotten Son of God, the Messiah? For whatever reason, John was just at a low point in his life, and he asked that question. 
Jesus responded, and he didn't take issue with John. He didn't criticize his question or supposed lack of belief or faith. But he did say this. He said, go back to John and tell him this. Telling the blind can see, the deaf can hear. The lepers are cleansed. You tell him that the miracles going on around him, the miracles that we are experiencing are just one sign that are pointing us in the direction of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus turned to his friends and he said so that they would all hear, so there would be no mistaking this. He said, of every single person ever born, there is no one greater than John. And then he added, and the one who is least in the kingdom, in a sense, the one who really follows after the heart of John will be the most humble. So his miracles mighty as they are, as they were, are a sign, a sign that points us to God. Jesus was mighty in his teaching. He was mighty in his miracles. But nowhere is it seen more than his might in his own death. Mighty. In his death. Folks, go back and read the account for yourself. We don't have time to do that this morning. But you will find that Jesus was in complete, complete control of all the circumstances surrounding his trial and his crucifixion. I mean, what looked like was being done to him, those things being done to him, actually, he was allowing those things to happen. He knew that when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and knelt there to pray, that his own friends would not be able to stay awake and pray with him. And he prayed so hard, he sweat drops of blood, the Scripture says. And he knew that Judas would be coming at such and such an hour and he would betray him. All these things Jesus knew because he was ultimately in control of what he called his hour. Not 60 minutes Not the turning of the hands of a clock or a sundial. But his hour that he had talked about time and time again with his followers. My hour has not yet come. His first miracle, the turning of water into wine at a wedding wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. His own mother in talking to him. Jesus had to put up his hand and say, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was mighty even in the events of his death. And then, of course, the greatest miracle of all, where Jesus showed his might, was his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul basically in those verses says this, if Jesus was not raised from the dead then it's pointless. If Jesus did not conquer death 
If he was not given a resurrection body, then everything we've stood for, everything we're saying, everything we prayed for is for naught because it all hinges upon the resurrection. We are lost without that resurrection. But Jesus, mighty God, his might is seen in his conquering death because that promise extends to you and to me. So Jesus, the mighty God, is mighty in his teaching, in his miracles, in his death, in his resurrection. But there's one other portion of this idea of being mighty. We think of it in terms of strength, yes, in terms of power, absolutely, of being a conqueror, one who will protect, one who will... Keep us from harm. And there's all the truth to be found in that, in that statement of his might. But we must remember, if we choose to refuse Jesus' claim upon our life, if we choose to reject him, that might becomes a two-edged sword. And the might that we think of, the power that carries us through and that helps us to be victors, in any and every circumstance, will also be that might that destroys us. It's not perhaps the happiest thought to think of at Christmas, but it doesn't make it any less true that the very might of God cuts both ways. That's why our message is to be received by faith. That's why it's important and indicative upon us as a church to reach out and to tell the good news and to preach the good news to the lost. That's why missions makes sense because we are not knowing what the timeline of God is and we are in the midst of right now and the here and now where lives are in the balance because the might of God The judgment of God is just as real as the might of God that protects us. So, he is mighty, but he's God. Now, that takes a little bit of thinking here. It demands us to to understand what it means to be called mighty God. The early church argued about this in the first generation after the events of Jesus. They argued for hundreds of years before the leaders of the Christian movement finally were able to put down on paper and agree to the very nature of who Jesus was. And the best way that they concluded, I think, still stands today is to simply say Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. Literally, they tried to separate and to say, well, he was divine while he was in heaven, but when he came and was born in the manger, all of a sudden he's not divine anymore and he's just human. And then that humanness carried him through his ministry and then they begin, see, you just get lost in it. But the simple fact of the matter is Jesus was fully God. He's fully man. The Trinity, the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we take for granted, you find in the Scripture that the thread does run through all of Scripture to show 
that God indeed is three in one. So Jesus, fully God and fully man, he came to this earth. But let us not think that he ceased to be God. In John chapter 8, Jesus is visiting with some friends and some others came into the conversation who were not so friendly and they begin to criticize Jesus for who he was, what he stood for. You remember there toward the end of John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Scripture says that right after Jesus uttered, I am, that the crowd grew furious and they picked up stones. They it incited a riot. They were determined to, to kill Jesus over his statement. Why? Because Jesus had used the very name of God that God had given to Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. When Moses said, if I go back to Egypt and I... Tell the people that, who has sent me? What do I say? Tell me your name. You remember God said, I am that I am. That's my name. If you spell it out, pronounce it out in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And an Orthodox Jew to this day will not say the personal name of God, Yahweh, which is the verb of being, I am. He will not utter it because it would be sacrilegious and so What do we have? We substitute the word Lord for it or Jehovah in our translations. Jesus said before Abraham was born, Yahweh, I am. I am God. I am one with the Father. See, he is a mighty God. The mighty God has named us. It's his right. When you think about it, you don't name yourself. I didn't name, I I, I didn't name me Stephen. My parents gave me that name. And my full name is Stephen Gill Hatfield, G-I-L-L. That was my mother's family name, my mother's maiden name. And so I'm named after my mother's family, as well as my dad's. But I didn't name myself. Sometimes we think that we have that right and we don't. And nothing is more true than in the scripture where God names us. Whether we like the name he gives us, whether we agree with it or not, it's his right, it is not ours, and he has given us names. What are they? Well, I've given you a list. There's 15 of them. We're not going to be able to talk about them. But I did give you the scripture references for each one of these names. They're printed in the worship guide. Tell me thank you. That wasn't very heartfelt. Tell me thank you. Okay, because I could have made you look it up on your own, which may be the best thing for you to do the homework on your own. But I included those verses. But I just want you to know, just take a moment. The God who created this universe has given to us the following names. And these names, once again, 
It's not just a handle to recognize and identify us like many of us consider names today, but names in the Old Testament and New Testament period were highly significant because they were symbolic, because they sought to describe the person who was given that name. God has named us chosen. That's in Ephesians 1.4. Beloved, child of God. He's named us as redeemed. He's called us forgiven. We have been given the name new creation. We've been called alive. Friend. We're called and named free. We're called heir, heirs of God. Accepted. Righteous. You remember this one? Just lop it off at R-I-G-H-T. That's the best definition of righteous or righteousness. It's correct. It's right relationship with God. We've been given that name. We are righteous, blessed, blessed. Citizen of heaven is one of our names as well as complete. And this is just 15. Of, I didn't do a head count of all of them. These are just a few of the names that God has given to us. He has named us. He has given us these names. And some of them you say, well, they're not really names. You may not see them as names, but the names describe the action. The very name describes what is being talked about. So in all of these, from being chosen all the way down to being complete, these are the names that God has given to us. He gave his son four distinct titles and names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He is mighty God and he has put his stamp of approval upon us which means my friends that our celebrations our celebrations of food and gathering for fellowship and opening presents these are not to create joy hear me we don't do these things to create joy we do these things to celebrate who we are. God has given us these names. We just sang a song right before I came up here. What did it say? I am who you say I am. And some of these titles were in the lyrics that we sang. Our celebrations are not to create enthusiasm. It's to celebrate what God has called us what he has given to us, the position he has put us in to be his children. Mighty God. But there's a question. Are you and I at all self-aware of what Christmas really means? It was Christmas Eve. John Mason was the last one 
to leave the office every day. He walked over to the big, strong safe, spun the dials, opened the door, and he made sure as he went in that it was going to stay in that position. And as he walked in to that safe, he looked up and at the very top, there was a white card had writing on it. It was taped to the very top, very top strong box in the safe. He looked at it and he remembered that it was one year ago on Christmas Eve when he was the last one to leave the office as usual. And he spun the dials and opened the door and walked in to make sure everything was in order. And little did he know, but the door swung shut. And he was completely enveloped in darkness. He was frightened. He beat on the door, realizing that there was nothing he could do from the inside. And then the reality began to sink in that... This was not a a time lock safe, but it would only be open from the outside. And it wouldn't be open the next morning because the next morning was Christmas. He was going to be trapped in total darkness for 36 hours. He couldn't believe it. He then panicked because would he survive? Would there be enough oxygen in this safe that was three feet wide, seven feet tall, eight feet across? Would there be enough oxygen to last him? And he got on his hands and knees and he felt a faint rush of air and realized in the corner that there was a flow of air. So he just sank down, put his hands his head in his hands and couldn't believe. Well, he said, surely I won't have to stay in here all 36 hours. Someone is going to remember and ask. But then he realized no one would. He was unmarried and lived alone. The maid that cleaned his apartment to him was just a servant. He treated her that way. His brother invited him over, but he had two boys and his nephews were obnoxious and they got on his nerves and they expected presents. He had an invitation to go and help serve at a soup kitchen, but that wasn't going to be what he was going to do. He had his day planned. He was going to stay home by himself and enjoy the solitude. So the next morning came and the next evening came. And the day after Christmas arrived. And the head clerk who came, his routine was to spin and open the safe. He did just that. But he went on to his inner office and no one saw Mr. Mason slip out of the safe, go to the water fountain and gulp water. No one saw him jump into the taxi and go home. And when he got home, he took a shower, shaved, put on his clothes, went back to the office and was greeted casually by all of his employees. He had a couple of conversations during the day, even with his own brother. And he realized 
what the truth was. That he hadn't been missed. That he had disappeared from the face of the earth. For everyone else in his life, it was December the 26th. And it shook him. He was forced to admit some things. To admit that for him, Christmas had been a time of selfishness. Whereas really it dawned upon him that Christmas was about giving because it was God giving his son to us in that manger. So he spent that entire year making some changes in his life. And here it was, Christmas Eve again. He stepped into that safe Made sure it wasn't going to swing shut. And he saw the card. Matter of fact, if you think and look carefully, you can see him now. Is it the same Mr. Mason in the black overcoat or is it a different man? For he seems to have a little quicker step. And even though he's bundled up and has parcels, packages... In his arms, he's smiling because he's going to meet his nephews. They're going to trim the tree, and then the whole family's going to a Christmas Eve carol candlelight service. And it has something to do with the words that are on that white card that he looked at every day because they were in his own hand. And what did they say? To love people to be indispensable to someone. This is the purpose of life. My friends, we serve the mighty God who has given us privilege, has given us a name and names that we need to live in the reality of those names. And may Christmas always be just another remembrance, another reminder of Jesus, the mighty God, who gave his life that we might live. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you, hear your word, and make choices. And Father, we pray that you lead us and guide us and encourage us to make the right choices, and to obey you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour the way we do every time we meet, for we believe that when God speaks, we're given the opportunity to make choices and to respond. And so we offer this time of of commitment, of decision-making. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. We're going to ask those in our congregation that need to make choices that need to be made before the world to, to do so now. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, yes, Lord, thank you for coming to this earth and thank you for taking my place on the cross and thank you for giving me eternal life. If that's a choice you want to make, I want to ask you to come forward, let us pray with you and let us encourage you. If you're here today and you know the Lord, just hadn't told anybody, tell us, tell the world. 
follow him in believer's baptism. That's something we can talk about and discuss so that you understand its significance and its meaning. Joining a church, being a part of a church family. It's an important decision, yes. There are great churches all around us, yes. But if God's leading you to link arms with us, how do you join our church? You come forward. That's the first step, the journey, as we journey to bring God's kingdom closer to this earth. And then for many of us, it may be, it's your last name, Ed Mason, but you still just move through life ignoring the obvious. Self-centered, with really a hole of loneliness in your life. Doesn't have to be there. Doesn't have to be that way. All it takes is acknowledging who you are in Christ. And however that determines you behave and the choices you make, God will show you. He always does. So that's our invitation. I ask you to stand with us as we sing. You respond as God leads.